Welcome everyone, uh, it's great to be with you again today. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Max Strong with me to, to the podcast today. It's really great to have you here, Max. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Um, Max is a, um, an author and a speaker, and um, a lot of his work... Just tell us a bit about your work, Max, and the, the kind of stuff that you do. Well... It's not easy to describe what I do exactly. Uh, people describe it in different ways, uh, but essentially I work in the field of well-being, which is not just wellness. To me, the word wellness implies that you are healthy and uh, to help you sleep and um, to lower your stress. But mm. besides working with people on those subjects, my work goes deeper and goes into the, emo the emotional life of the human being because I find that the average uh, city dweller worldwide uh, has a tremendous amount of unreconciled emotions simply because as a, as a world culture we really aren't trained or mentored at all on how to deal with our own emotions and so we just don't deal with them. So we're, we're almost emotionally illiterate and this is what causes so many of our problems. And so I elucidate these things through lecturing, but even more so through certain exercises that I have people do, mm. which uh, allows them to access these things. So people will have sometimes very big experiences in short, very short period of time uh, through my work. So what was, your own, what was your own personal journey into doing that work in the first place? What led you to do that, to explore that? Well, it was very gradual. I, I suppose, without telling my whole life story, uh, I had an experience when I was only about 14, 15 years old that really shook me. It was, it was something that made me really question uh, what is life, why is life, is there a God, isn't there a God, is there a soul, is there life after death, uh, which some people... Uh, started exploring a little bit later in life, but uh, it, it hit me quite early and I became very passionate about it. So when I was 15 years old, I was reading, uh, I would say, university-level comparative religion and philosophies quite avidly mm -hmm. and learning to meditate and practice Qigong in my teens. Um, and then off and on through the next 10 or 15 years, I went in and out of um, that sort of study and then, you know, immersing myself and trying to find my place in the world. Uh, eventually, I found Hatha Yoga, and that had a big impact on me because through Hatha Yoga, if you include a breathing practice, uh, which doesn't mean you're just breathing, but it's using breathing patterns, um, we find that our mind and our, our emotions and our body are not separate. And that is really a, an astounding revelation because that's something else that we're really not taught. Mm. We treat them differently as separate entities. I'll talk more about that later. But uh, once that happened, uh, it, it caused such a, really a revolution in me. Uh, I, I guess I could call it accelerating my own personal evolution that I uh, went very deep into that and eventually started teaching it. And over the years of teaching, which is now about 21 years, I have um, developed my own system, which is a, a, an interdisciplinary system, you could say, or a hybrid of 
uh, hatha yoga, uh, breath work from yoga and qigong and movement therapy. But also, you know, the longer you teach, the more you learn. Mm, yeah. You know, through the petri dish of uh, working with people day by day, hour by hour, and so some of the knowledge that we uh, that anybody teaches comes from their own experience uh, and being able to observe your teaching techniques in action. You know, does this work? Does that work? So some techniques I've tried for five years and then jettisoned them eventually because they work but not very well and refined them to create my own techniques or taken old techniques and improve them in my opinion. So what I teach now is a, is a combination of those things. Right. Yeah, and the books that you've written, um, they're, they're great, but I mean, the titles alone are fantastic. Um, um, a Life Worth Breathing, which I think is an awesome title. Um, and, um, and your most recent book is There Is No App For Happiness. Yes. Um, which, that's fascinating. Um, and by the way, everybody, um, if you want to check out a bit of Max's work, you can go on um, YouTube and just Google Max Strom and uh, TED Talks, and there's a whole bunch of TED Talks on there, and they are um, they are fantastic. Um, so, um, yeah, so yeah, tell us a bit about um, because you talk about in the No Out for Happiness um, book, you talk about um, the digital age and um, how we're kind of more connect- we're sim- we're seemingly more connected through our machines, and that- that's made us less connected. In our kind of physical interactions, so that's um, right. That's what, right. Tell us a bit more about what that's what um, those, those kind of those ideas and explain those to us a bit more. Well, well most addictions, as we know, are not good for us, uh, and most people respond to being challenged if they have an addiction with something like, "I'm not addicted. I can stop anytime I want to. I just don't want to," which is the classic response of someone who's addicted. Uh, Once we're addicted, that means that we are uh, experiencing a dopamine infusion from our own body when we do something, Mm -hmm. whether it's playing video games or uh, eating white sugar or um, uh, watching sports, whatever it is, we we get an uh, an infusion of uh, dopamine from our brain and we get addicted to that, so we keep seeking it out alcohol, sex, cigarettes, whatever it is that we keep going back to for that injection. And then we get dependent on it. So obviously social media is extremely addictive. If you look at how people respond um, to it and how um, painful they actually describe not being allowed to access it. For example, if someone goes on one of my retreats, I give retreats uh, in Europe and the United States, and they're, uh, besides being uh, um, an immersion into my work, they're also uh, a disconnect, what do you call it, an unplugging for the duration. And this is a really big deal for a lot of people. They can't imagine not walking around with their phone in their hand. It's as if you take a pacifier away from a baby. They, they really verbally... Uh, pronounce how extraordinarily difficult it is for them. So obviously that alone, if we just look at that alone, it's not healthy. Mm. Um, Another reason it's extremely unhealthy to live online, and this is a really big one that has nothing to do with psychology really, 
is that it's created a new sedentary lifestyle. That the more we sit in front of a computer or um, our handheld device, the more sedentary we become and the unhealthier we become. We now know that becoming sedentary is shortening our lifespan greatly. And virtually every wellness expert and doctor involved in human longevity is saying, you have to get up and move every day. If you don't, you will suffer this, 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 and this by age 40, and this, this, and this by age 50, etc. It's a really big deal to the point where they're saying being sedentary is the new smoking. Um, so it's mm. it's actually life-threatening to become sedentary. So people who weren't sedentary are now becoming so because of being online for so many hours a day. And we go from being online to playing video games, to watching television, which all involves sitting down. Yeah. So those two reasons alone yeah. are reasons to really look at what we're doing and uh, how much of our online experience is useful and enriching and how much mm -hmm. of it is simply addictive behavior. And the key to addictive behavior that must be looked at is when we're addicted to something, we are avoiding something else. Mm. Yeah, addiction is used to numb. That's right. Numb pain, isn't it? It's a way out of um, dealing with the conflicts and insecurities and fears and stuff that and you know from your past that you haven't confronted. Um, That's right. The yeah. the, uh, the the most obvious example is if you take someone who is depressed with the direction of their life, they don't know what their life purpose is. They have a job they can't stand. They don't have a meaningful relationship. They can try to work that out. Or they can go play a video game where they're masters of the universe and become king and uh, save the world every night. And so mm. clearly <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. a pretty tempting choice. Yeah, absolutely. So what's a, what would you say is a healthy approach to digital technology, like a, a way to get the most out of its benefits, but also to have a healthy balance where you're not kind of a, where you're not getting addicted. Well, I think it's it's much. There are so many choices now online that it's much like going into a big shopping center and 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 you you have to go in there knowing what you want to get and not just buying everything that's put in front of you. You know, not downloading every app that's offered uh, or trying to go to every website. Uh, we have to be uh, choosy. Uh, one of the ways that I describe it in my book, There Is No App for Happiness, is to look at anything, whether it's a video game, a website, social media, an app, whatever it is, and, and ask yourself just a few simple questions, such as, is this going to save time or steal time? Because some apps do save time. You can download things that actually help you save time during your day. I think those are fantastic. But most of them steal your time. Mm. And uh, we have to be careful because our time and our lifespan is exactly the same thing. We don't think of them as that because we have phrases like life is precious. And then we have another phrase that we have time to kill. Which is it? Because time in life is the same. You see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When we're tracking time, we're really tracking our mortal lifespan, the, the lifespan of the body. 
Mm. So if we have, let's say, 15 more years, five zero, what are you going to do at that time? There's a finite amount of hours each day that we have to to use, and a lot of that has to be taken up with, you know, uh, working, washing, preparing food, uh, all the usual day-to-day things that we have to do to function. And then there's only a certain amount of hours that are left over to do everything else. And if we fill those up with addictions, the things we aren't doing are, for example, learning to understand ourselves so we can have a more uh, meaningful life or a more meaningful career or a more meaningful relationship or to improve the relationship that we're in. We're not doing any of that as long as we are online, so to speak. And I think social media is the white sugar of our time, meaning that we crave it, it feels good until we're finished and we feel bad and then we want more and we we really do get addicted to it. There have been lots of studies already that have proven that once people come off of social media, they have a slight depression immediately, that they feel worse. And um, the reason it's tempting is because it does connect us to more people more immediately. However, the unspoken story about social media is that it's superficial, especially if it's text-based. In other words, um, right now you and I are looking at each other through Skype. So Mm -hmm. that means that we can see each other's expressions and responses. Yeah. It's nonverbal communication. And if you you look up nonverbal communication, what you find is that human beings communicate nonverbally 90%. Mm. We get 90% of our data through tone of voice, facial expressions, body positioning, and only 10% through words. So we actually judge people uh, if you can trust them, if you like them, mm. based on, not on text, but on, all these nonverbal qualities. So if we are only communicating through through text, we don't know if we can trust each other. We don't know if we like each other. We don't know if we're being fooled. And so the reptilian mind stays a little bit on its guard. It doesn't really know Mm. what's going on. Uh, For example, if um, you're communicating... What's the example I gave in the book? Uh, It's like prisoners in the gulag who are in solitary confinement, Mm. desperately lonely, and the only way they communicate is by tapping on pipes, you know, sending some sort of Morse Mm. code or something. And they're delighted to have contact, but they don't really know, am I communicating with another prisoner or am I communicating with the warden who's pretending to be a prisoner to get information from me? You know, it's a little bit like that. Until you see the face of the person, uh, we really don't know who they are, if we can trust them. Now, more importantly, uh, we we also need physical touch, and we need to hear the sound of people's voices. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I've always said with social media that um, we can live without social media interaction, but we cannot live without physical human face-to-face interaction that we need that to live um that's a great example um that's a great saying i agree with it completely um yeah i mean it's thank you (laughs) um i want to talk about the breathe the the, you know healthy breathing and all that kind of thing as well i want to go into 
a lot of detail about that. The reason I talked about the social media part first was because I think that a lot of that leads naturally into um, healthy rhythms of life and healthy um, patterns of life and patterns of breathing as well. And social media is an addiction to cover up some of the things that are going on and there may be a healthier way to confront those things. So... Um, what did what does healthy breathing look like for a human being, like a regular human being? And what difference can it make to us to have healthy breathing as opposed to unhealthy kind of patterns of breathing? Well, first of all, when somebody first hears that we're talking about breathing, they can almost immediately tune us out because because we haven't been brought up or taught usually by society that there are two types of breathing. We have no clue why this conversation would steer in that direction. It just sounds weird to us. So I want anybody who's feeling that, I want to address that right away. Um, and to, to say that there are two types of breathing. One is subconscious breathing, automatic breathing. That's what we do almost all the time. We don't think about our breathing any more than we think about our heart beating. We notice that when we run or exercise, our breathing accelerates along with our heart rate and deepens, but we don't really control it so much, generally speaking. Mm. So that's automatic breathing, and that's what we do nearly all the time. But human beings are also capable of conscious breathing. So the conscious mind takes over. The automatic pilot says, okay, I'm in charge now. I have the, I have the wheel, and I'm going to decide to breathe slower, faster, deeper, shallower, whatever it's going to be, or hold my breath. Okay, so this conversation now, we're, we're talking about conscious breathing. And just like other forms of exercise, let's use the example of lifting weights. If I take, a, if I take some dumbbells and hold them out in front of me and I do, uh, what do you call it, curls with my arms, this is a repetitive pattern. I'm going to, let's say, do 20 repetitions. Rest, do another 20. Rest, do another 20. We call this exercising, and it, technically it's called resistance exercise mm -hmm. because we're using our muscles against um, the resistance of the weight. Right. With breathing, with conscious breathing, it's, it's similar. We use breathing patterns. We use a pattern, and we do it several times in a row with small rests in between. And when you do that, you can trigger the nervous system to shift quite suddenly. So if you're under a lot of stress or you're feeling anxiety or depression, you can do breathing patterns that cause your nervous system to relax and to switch fight or flight off and rest and digest, as they call it, on. And your heart rate goes down, your blood pressure normalizes, and you feel a sense of ease as opposed to tension. And you feel this in your body. You don't, it's not just the way you think. You actually feel your body shift. So you, your question was about healthy breathing. That goes more into um, sitting at your desk with a straight spine instead of a collapsed spine so that your breathing is naturally deeper and so on. Right. But um, what I'm talking about now is more breathing patterns to shift your, your um, metabolism from an unhealthy state of stress to a healthy state of relaxation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been um, practicing a bit of healthy breathing. Um, with a, uh, I know a yoga teacher, and they've been 
talking me through a lot of healthier breathing patterns and I've been practicing them and I've noticed that you feel completely different once you've intentionally sat and done that for like 10 minutes or so you know it just changes every change your whole body just feels completely different um that's right it makes such a massive difference when you breathe properly um so i remember you you've spoken about um the role of grief in anxiety um and how healthier breathing can help with this so can you unpack that a bit yes of course um as everybody knows uh, we don't really talk about grief and we're really not allowed to express it particularly in western europe and the former colonies of western europe such as america canada australia etc so um what we're taught to do is simply to suppress it as much as possible. Mm. We're taught this in the schoolyard when we're small children. If you get upset, uh, you're mocked by the other children, called a little girl, which is this big insult when you're a little child to a boy and uh, or a baby. You know, you call the baby. Mm. And uh, as you get older, it actually gets worse. Maybe you're in a schoolyard fight when you're 12 years old and get your nose broken, and you're still not supposed to cry. Even though you, you have a broken nose, it's, you're ashamed if you express that something hurts you. So what you notice boys do, uh, sometimes girls these days as well, is try to be as tough as possible. They don't just try to become adults. They want to, to behave as if nothing phases them, nothing bothers them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the last thing you want to do is express that you care, that your feelings are hurt, that you're embarrassed, and especially that you're shamed. And yeah. so we're trained by society to, uh, about all this. And uh, I don't think it really serves us particularly anymore no. in our society. Because what happens then is um, we aren't very good at filtering emotions. So if we keep stuffing uh, pain, embarrassment, shame, grief, uh, it stays in us. It stays literally in our body. That's where we feel it. And um, it gets worse and worse as we get older. And that's why we tend to uh, do things like drink a lot of alcohol or uh, smoke pot or other things to deal with these feelings. Um, we're not taught to talk about these things at all. And in fact, quite the opposite. Now, in Western culture... Six thirty. That's my computer talking to me. In Western <laughs> culture, um, we are trained to suppress grief. So let's say I have a grief event where um, I, I call the big three death, divorce, and bankruptcy, but there are many other things that can cause grief. Yeah. You know, uh, emptiness syndrome, for example. Um, anytime that we feel that there's a big loss or shame, we feel grief. So if I have a grief event, um, rather than allowing my friends and family to come toward me, what my tendency is, is to push them away and isolate myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay. Uh, I just stay inside until I, I won't say get over it. Uh, I get over it somewhat and I can suppress the rest of it and move on. Uh, and the rest of my family and friends are condition to believe that's exactly what they should do. So if I'm going through grief, they'll avoid me. 
Now, to show that I'm not exaggerating, I, I gave this talk not that long ago in a bookstore uh, where I was doing a book signing for There Is No App for Happiness. And afterward, this couple came up to me, and uh, they were about, I'd say, 35 years old. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, thank you for talking about that because we lost our little boy last year. He was one years old, and he died in a child care accident. So they weren't with him when he died. And obviously, this is a, you know, your worst nightmare as a parent mm. to lose your little child. And they said, when that happened, half of our friends stopped calling us. Oh, my goodness. So we not only grieved the loss of our child, we lost half our friends in one day. <sighs> and when we asked one of them why, uh, they just said it, 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 they had a child that made them very uncomfortable and uh, disturbed to be around us. It was almost like it was contagious, you know. But another way of saying this is, well, let me put it this way. I was speaking to a group of about 500 people about this very thing, and I had them raise their hands in response to these questions. So these are the questions I asked. I said, raise your hand if when someone is going through grief, you avoid them. And most of the hands went up. And then I said, okay, is this the reason? Raise your hand if this is true. You avoid them because you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, and you're afraid you're going to make things worse or at least awkward. And almost every hand went up. And then I said, why don't we know what to do or say? Isn't that an interesting question? Mm. In case no one's told us, uh, told you, uh, or your listeners, there are going to be more grief events as we get older, not fewer. Yeah, yeah. As you get older, you lose more and more people for various reasons. Yeah. Eventually death. So why aren't we taught how to deal with these things? We're not taught anything. We're totally illiterate about these things. And it's really not that difficult. So then the next question I ask is, would you like to know some things to do if someone you know is grieving? And people are eager to know. They've never had this conversation before. Yeah. I mean, I. it's funny because I've had a major experience of grief. I lost my mother when I was 23 years old. Oh, that's um, a good age. Um, yeah, it's like 16, 16, 17 years ago. And, um, yeah, I was, I'm the oldest, so I've always been a bit protective of, you know, uh, my sibling, my youngest sibling, and just... The family generally, and my rea- and like you say, my reaction to it was basically to bury it and be strong for everybody else. Yes, exactly. You know, and when I did cry, um, I I had to I apologise because I felt guilty. Exactly. And shame. Um, yeah, exactly. And it was I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it has to do with the man thing, rather than just it's my job to protect everybody, and I'm not doing a good job. You know. Um, but fortunately, my sister and, and uh, my dad were both um, very helpful. You know, kind of, it's okay to cry. It's a good thing to cry, you know. Um, That's um, unusual. That's very good that they did that. Um, you know, because they'd already cried a lot, you know. Um, so, um, yeah. So, and I know what that's like. I've had friends um, in my peer group who've lost parents. And... I know that experience has helped me to be able to support them, even if it's just 
telling them, I'm here for you if you need me. If you don't need me, that's fine. But if you do, then I'm here. You know, and sometimes that's, sometimes, I mean, I know from experience that if someone had said that to me, that would have meant the world, even if I didn't actually need them to know that they were there. Yes. Yeah, it makes a difference. So, um, precisely, precisely. The people who come, your friends who come to you rather than avoid you when you're going through grief, when you're basically down on your knees, you know, just mm. broke. It's a bridge of friendship. It strengthens the friendship. They're people you'll never forget the rest of your life. Mm. So it's rather than avoiding each other, we should be strengthening our relationships. Um, but it just hasn't been allowed through this because of this these ridiculous codes we've been taught that are quite medieval, actually. Um, I mm. mean, I use Alexander the Great as an example for men who think, oh, you should never, should never cry, never let anybody see you cry. Well, Alexander the Great was no wimp. You know, I mean, he, I don't remember how many thousand battles he was in, but hand-to-hand combat, you know, for years and years and years and won every battle. But when his horse was killed, he had the same horse for years. He had this beloved horse that was this extraordinary war horse. Finally, of course, it, it, a spear took it down. Yeah. And he spent, I think, two weeks and his tent wouldn't come out. He was just devastated by the death of his horse, uh, wept openly about it, and they built a statue of the horse. And then he went on and had another war. I mean, it does not, does not meet, emasculate you if you express your grief over the loss of someone or something at all. Mm. But we have this fear in, in the Western world that's exactly what it does. Like once, once you express that you care, it's finished. <laughs> You're, yeah. you, should, you should just die of shame. So the original question was about breathing and mm. the lungs. The chest seems to be the area where we express grief and we store it. Express, for example, if you hear someone cry or yourself cry, you'll notice that the lungs and the diaphragm muscle spasm. You know, it has this sort of sound, this <laughs> that familiar sound is spasming lungs and diaphragm. Yeah. So we know that the lungs and the diaphragm express grief. We just don't know why yet. The neurologists still don't know why. Uh, but they do. And for some reason, when we do certain breathing patterns, it encourages the stored grief to come up and out, which is really good. Um, I mean, people go to therapy for years before some, that happens sometimes where it, they get it out. Now, you, well, someone will think, well, why would I want it to come up? Why would I just want to get upset again or cry in front of somebody? Well, the reason is the grief doesn't come up by itself. It comes up with insight, memory. It comes up with knowledge. Mm. So you're able to reconcile these old things rather than just uh, keep them buried. Yeah. So, for yeah. example, how old are you now? I'm 39. Okay. I just turned 60. Now, you lost your dear mother when you were 23. Yeah. And I'm sure that was extremely painful. Yeah. And the more painful because you had to be the strong one. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. So you probably suppressed a lot of your feelings and tried to move on with it to protect your family. Yeah. Now, now if you allowed that grief to emerge now, memory would emerge with it, insight would emerge with it, but now you have a 39-year-old's mentality. 
you know, the emotional infrastructure of a 39-year-old, mm. not a 23-year-old. So your processor, so, much, so, so to speak, is uh, much more advanced. Yeah. So mm. it, would, it would be a different experience. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do, really, yeah. And this is what happens if someone has a childhood trauma. Let's say you're five and your parents get divorced. You don't even know what divorce or marriage is when you're five. You don't understand any of it. So if you then access your feelings when you're 39 years old about your five-year-old experience, your five-year-old emotions come up and through a 39-year-old processor, to use contemporary terms. Yeah. And it doesn't destroy you because now you know what marriage is, you know what divorce is, you know why people get divorced. Maybe you've been divorced, you see. And so it's not traumatic really to, to process it in this way. It actually is liberating. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I find that now because I, you know, I see a spiritual director um, who's also a trained therapist. Um, Excellent. And um, to process this kind of thing, you know, and what I've, what I've found so far is that I've, I've unresolved grief comes out, you know, um, unresolved emotions, anger, whatever. Um it all comes out, you know, and I'm actually able to deal with it in a healthier kind of way because I've had that time distance and um, I'm now able to cry, you know, period. I'm now able to kind of, every so often I have a, I have a, have a moment where I just deliberately um, try to remind myself of the, the grief. Allow, me, allow myself to experience it again so that I can feel that emotion, I can cry a little bit. You know, because it helps with the healing, you know. Uh, and I do that intentionally. I don't do that um, usually on her birthday or the anniversary or whatever, you know. I But more often than that, I, I try to go there a little bit and just um, allow myself to feel that grief again because um, it's helpful. Yes, wonderful. That's, you're on, on exactly the right track, I believe. Now, you know what happens if a person keeps suppressing grief it comes out in a different way. Mm. It comes out usually as anxiety. Yeah, definitely. So quite often, <laughs> people who have anxiety or panic attacks actually don't have an anxiety problem. They have a grief problem. And once they are able to express and reconcile their grief, they lose their anxiety issues. I see this again and again in my breathing workshops. The people who come in with the anxiety, once they go through the breath work, their anxiety goes away. Mm. It's similar with depression, where if you do breath work, sometimes it can lift a person out of depression. So we're talking about people alleviating anxiety and depression without medication, without any side effects. And one other thing that it helps tremendously with is sleep. So if you do breath uh, breathing practices every day, your current sleep issue can possibly no longer be an issue or it can diminish it greatly without medications. So it's an extraordinary thing to learn to do breath work. It can help you in so many ways that are very meaningful, not only to, to the individual, but to their family. Yeah. Um, definitely. I mean, I know that from experience. Definitely that healthy breath work makes a huge difference. And often it's just a matter of disciplining yourself to to do it as well. Um, so, I mean, how many breath 
how many breaths should we be taking a minute in a healthy, with healthy, when, when we're breathing in a healthy way? What should our regular breathing pattern be? While seated, you mean? Or while walking? Which, uh, uh, well, both, actually. What would it be while seated and what would it be while walking? Well, it, it's, it's somewhat... I think it's, it's somewhat determined on you, uh, the person, uh, what state they're in, if they're sitting up straight or slouching. You know, so many people slouch when they work on their laptops these days. When you slouch, it diminishes your breathing two-thirds. Um, but if you were sitting up straight and you weren't under a lot of stress, you know, one breath every 10 to 15 seconds is enough. Wow. So, you know, four or five breaths a minute. In my opinion, when you're walking, it's more. It's, you know, eight to ten breaths a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, saw, I heard some research that said, a lot of us breathe about twenty. Try breathe from our chest, and we breathe about twenty times a minute. When that's not probably that healthy, um, we should well, be breathing a lot less. Exactly. There's a lot of confusion around that, and I'd like to clear that up because I think it's so important. When uh, physicians or other people are talking about chest breathing and not to do it, what they're actually referring to, and I wish I could show it to you. I wish I could show it to your viewers. Is breathing up at the top of their chest, which is a shallow form of breathing. And I agree with that. But to completely fill your lungs, you have to do chest breathing, but it's a different type of chest breathing. Right. Okay. Which is making your side ribs, your lower side ribs, move out and your back ribs move back. And then your, your um, diaphragm is really activated and your lungs fill 100%. That's, that's as deep as we can breathe. It's deeper than belly breathing alone. Belly breathing is fine. If you're in a passive state, uh, sitting, reading, eating, but uh, for if you're doing uh, physical exercise, yoga, or you want to move some of these emotions out, as I said, then we need to do chest breathing, but not the upper shallow, I call it old man breathing, full, complete chest breathing where the lungs fill 100%. Mm. Interesting. There's so much more to breathing than we realize, isn't there? I mean, yes. Um, we don't. We should get educated. We really should be educated on this a lot more when we're young, when we're growing up, because yes, along with several other subjects like <laughs> resolution. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I have a ten-minute breathing practice that I teach people to do daily. Uh, you can get that off of my website, uh, maxstrom.com. Yeah, I definitely recommend that. Um, yeah, um, I did try the um, breathing exercises in, that you showed in one of your TED talks. Because mm. one of your TED talks, you get people to do it along with you. And if you watch this, um, listeners, then you will be able to do it as well. And it was, yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, really, it's amazing what little things, little disciplines, can the difference they can make. Um, so, just one other. One other question I wanted to ask, and that's um, about kind of spirituality. Um, yeah, because in the scriptures, the word that's often used for breath is the same word that's used for spirit. That's right, in um, many languages. Um, so what role does spirituality play in your, your life and your work? Um, and how do you think these healthy, spirit, these healthy breathing practices can, can help our, our spiritual journeys? 
Well, that's a really good question. And uh, it's, it's interesting how the average person looks at, I should say, values, their spiritual life, but keeps running up against the wall of their own psychology. So, for example, people will have a very deep spiritual belief system, mm. but still keep running up against an eating disorder or alcohol disorder, you know, something like that. Yeah. And they're asking for forgiveness, but they don't understand why they can't overcome it. And most of the time, these things are psychologically based. They think, well, how do you break through that? And that's where breath work can come in. So, for example, let's say you're very religious, even I'll use the word religious now, but you're living on antidepressants now or anti-anxiety drugs. Mm. The, that you're, Whatever you're doing now religiously has not taken care of that problem. So through breath work, you can shift your nervous system so that you no longer are depressed or have sleep disorder or anxiety disorder, which will do nothing but increase the depth of your spiritual life or your religious life. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to be able to, to not have an anxiety disorder, to sleep really well like you used to when you were a child, to wake up in the morning and stretch? Do you think that would diminish your spiritual life or improve it? I think it would, of course, would improve it and has with mine. That's fascinating. That fascinating that 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 you that that you think that that we can get past these. That anxiety is basically related to breathing, and that healthy breathing can help combat these 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 really big problems that people have. You know, with anxiety. I mean, right. I've I've suffered with anxiety as well. I mean, makes sense because I've had a massive um, loss of in my life. You know. Um, um, but I know that actually practicing healthy breathing has helped that, for sure, um, and it's helped my spiritual journey. So I can testify to that being effective. Um, I think the challenge for me is is getting it on a regular basis, and the discipline of doing it every, every day. I think that's the thing that everybody will struggle with because, you know, living in a west, living in the Western world, you kind of you're up and you go to work and you come home and then you've got life at home, um, which is busy and. You know, sometimes people making 10 minutes in a day is, is difficult. But I think, I mean, from what I've learned from you today and from your work that I've, you know, listened to and read, and um, I think it's worth the investment. I think I think you believe that as well. Um, um, yeah, it's worth the investment of just a few minutes each day, just um, healthy breathing, slowing down. Yes, if we have time to watch television, we have time to do 10 or 15 minutes of breath work every day. Yeah. Because uh, that's going to make us feel different and better. And watching television will entertain us, but when we turn the lights off and go to sleep, we, we still are going to have a racing mind and um, a troubled spirit. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, thank you, um, Max. It's been great to have you on the podcast today. It's been my pleasure. I hope we do it again sometime. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Okay, everyone, that's all for today. I um, hope you've uh, learned a lot today, like I have. Um, and take care and we'll talk soon.